Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. After a long break, welcome back to another episode of Two Developers Down Under. As always, I am joined by my whimsically well-informed partner in crime, Kai Koenig. How are you doing today, Kai? I'm doing fine, Mark. How are you? I'm good. It feels good to do that, do that intro again. I, I feel like, I feel, I feel revived. Really, do you? That, oh, that, that's fine. You know, I, I don't mind being called whimsically well-informed. That's <laughs> Whatever, whatever floats your boat. Yeah, I feel good. It's it's always nice to get back into the flow of, of things again. So we're doing another episode. Yeah, finally. Yeah. So what was uh, the holdup? You went away and you're slack. Uh, I'm gonna blame you. No, I'm 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 not slack. You know, I'm at least not more slack than you are really. But I was away. That is a fair point. You know, I was away, away in Europe for about four weeks. Um, yeah, and you stood. Yeah, there, and then I went to Strange Loop as well, which you stood me up at because you suck. And <laughs> I didn't send you up. Yes, you did. You said no, I'd no. be there. And yeah, then, and I had a ticket, but then you know it kind of collided. Uh, with the that's true. True. You didn't stand me up. You piked. Very different. <laughs> Subtly. <laughs> Actually, that was an amazing conference, and you missed out. So. Oh, yeah, I totally, I totally agree. It would have been really great. And, you know, everything I've seen on, on Twitter and, and other channels made me aware that it would have been another good conference. And, you know, I've been at the, the one the year before and yep. I knew that it was good. Yeah, I suppose you hanging out with your family probably wasn't too bad, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, and we've been to Italy, which was quite nice, you know. Yeah. So, okay. Cool. So what are we doing today? All right, so we figured we'd have a little um, chat about like um, writing code outside of work. So uh, maybe maybe a bit of a general chat about writing code outside of work, and then just maybe have just kind of go through what what fun stuff we've we been working on on the side, and what are we enjoying working with and stuff. What what's been going on just for fun? Yeah, that sounds like a good thing. Maybe we should do the you know the important things first and do the thing of the day. Oh, of course. The thing is the day. It's been, yeah. Yeah, clearly, it's been too long. Okay. All right. You want to go first? What, what have you found for today? Uh, it's an incredibly busy day. There seems to be something with November 9, which it is here in, in um, Australia and New Zealand, that makes me think it's, I don't know, a very important day in history. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll just go back a bit. So it starts with Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany basically stepping down. In 1918, then in 1923, um, the government basically crushed the Bierhold Putsch, which was Hitler's first attempt to get into some sort of power. Then um, we have the anniversary of the Reichskristallnacht, basically, in 1938. In 1979... There was a massive nuclear attack false alarm um, where the U.S. pretty much launched or nearly launched World War III after some computer errors. In 1985, Garry Kasparov became the youngest world chess champion. Yep. And in 1989, finally, the German Wall or the Berlin Wall came down um, basically today. So it's like... There seems to be something with the um, 9th of November that makes it kind of busy from a historical and, you know, important things in history point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah looks like it. I, the, I've got that the first issue of the Rolling Stone magazine was published. Oh. <laughs> um, so they're not on the same level. <laughs> 
else have I got that you didn't quite catch? <laughs> oh, there is actually a funny one, and I'm just looking at that now. In 1994, the chemical element Darmstadtium is discovered. And that is really funny because I'm just looking at that name and I thought like, well, that sounds like a city in Germany. And going following that link, it actually is a city in Germany. It was discovered or created rather because it's one of those high atomic numbers which are really unstable mm. in actually a research institute in Darmstadt. So they called it Darmstadtium. There you go. That's that's normally so, what happens. Yeah. I had one other one. What was the other one I had? Uh, oh, there was the first test of the Saturn V rocket. That's kind of cool. Oh, that is actually cool. Yeah. Um, Great Boston Fire, 1872. Uh, Big fire. What happened there? I have no idea. I'm guessing okay. it was a fire in Boston. Well, <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, it was probably a big. significantly <laughs> one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, some stuff with this baseball stuff. Uh, Roger Clemens wins the uh, record seventh Cy Young Award. If anyone follows baseball at all, uh, that's probably that. That's pretty much all I've got. Quickly coming back to chess, um, did you actually know that um, there is another really big world chess championship coming up? Strangely yeah. enough, I did not. Can I please tell me more? Well, there's a quite young guy from Norway. Like he's 22, um, and he's basically said to be the you know, best chess player of the world currently. And he's um, going to fight for the championship against oh, that Indian guy. I forgot his name. Anat or something like that. And he is world champion for like the last five or six years. So that's actually going to be quite interesting, I think. If you are into chess, which I now realize probably most people are not. <laughs> <laughs> but that was fascinating and thanks for sharing. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay, so, alright. Um, so actually, maybe I'll start it off this way because I, I think this is an interesting, um, an interesting perspective and I can't remember who talked about this to me. I think I was uh, chatting with someone on IRC and um, I think I ended up looking them up on GitHub and I was like, oh my god, you have a whole lot of repositories. And he's like, well yeah, because anytime I write code that I'm mucking around on, it just goes up on GitHub. Yeah, fair enough. That's actually a really good idea. So I kind of started doing the same thing. And pretty much any time I'm mucking around with something new, even if it doesn't end up being anything, the first commit is is, goes up on the the GitHub pretty much straight away. Um, And I found that's actually pretty useful. Um, You know, when you're chatting with people or you're you're working on something and you go on IOC or IM or anywhere really, and you're like, oh, look at this thing over here that I'm working on. I'm trying to work something out and whatever. Don't have to paste bin it or or not. It's also just nice to kind of go back in time and see what you've been working on. You don't don't lose anything. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. You don't have that many uh, things on GitHub, Kai. I've got like six or seven repositories on there. I've got a few other ones on... um uh, Bitbucket as well, because Bitbucket is mercurial, if you remember. <laughs> and I don't even want to go down that road, basically. But I realized that, I mean, you know, GitHub has kind of become the, uh, I don't know, the hub of social coding or whatever you want to call it, essentially. I don't know. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. So if GitHub was actually supporting mercurial, that would be really nice. But, you know, that's, that's just what it is, basically. Yeah. GitHub with Git in the name is going to support Mercurial. 
Well, you know, Bitbucket started to support Git at some point because, I mean, obviously for commercial reasons, because they realized with Mercurial only, it's not really going to go well for them in the long run. Pretty much. Yeah. No, I mean, that, yeah, that's fair enough. So, what are you working on? Uh, where do we want to start? I'll start at the top because it's fun. So, um... B- before you actually... <laughs> Talk about crazy Monad-related things in Haskell, which I can <laughs> already predict because your cursor in the Google document is just pointing on that. What are you doing with WordPress? That's, oh, it's un, it's at least unusual for what I know of you. <laughs> that is that is true. Um, okay, so that, all right, let's let's start there. That actually kind of leads into a whole bunch of other stuff. So I finally was like, okay, I really hate my blog. I really, really hate my blog. I hate my blog so much. It's ridiculous. Um, and I wanted to, to redo it. Um, so I picked a platform, and I ended up picking WordPress because it's easy. Yeah, I did the same thing a while ago. Yeah. Um, and so if you go to compoundtheory.com, you will now see the new version of my website. I haven't even and- – I, I saw that you tweeted about that, but I didn't even have yeah. a look. Having a look. Who designed it? Was it maybe your wife? It was my wife, strangely enough. Interesting. Oh, that so, looks nice. Yeah. That looks. Oh, ooh. That looks actually really nice. Thank you very much. Yes, I have a very talented wife. I like her a lot. Uh, and then I had to sit down and actually like. Oh, actually, it was pretty good. I actually um, I found there's a there's a bunch of like blank WordPress themes that are just just nothing that you can just lay stuff on top of. Um, so I ended up using that and just wrote the CSS myself, uh, less CSS, to, to do it all, which I've done a million times before, so I was pretty happy doing that. Writing CSS sucks, and I hate it. Um, See, what I did for my work, for my for my blog with WordPress, I used um, a platform called, uh, what is it called? Thevis. Um, it's basically a theme generator, if you want to call it like that. It basically installs as a plugin into WordPress, and then you get really nice stuff out of the box by just clicking checkboxes, and it generates the CSS for you. (laughs) So that is actually quite nice. I mean, Thevis is a commercial thing, so I think I paid... I don't even yeah. know how expensive, like $49 or something like that. Yeah. But it's quite flexible in what it can do. And, it, you know, it's just like very hassle-free, essentially. Yeah, I have a wife that's a designer. So I was like, hon, can you make me something pretty? And she was like, okay. So coming back to your designer wife, didn't we, you know, like years ago talk, yes. talk about like creating a logo for our podcast and things yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah, we totally did that. And okay. it never happened. Yep. So what did you have to do to actually get the, the new website design in terms of bribery and stuff? Uh, she needed stuff done for her website, so I could hold it. Could hold ah, it. sweet. Clever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. But yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. WordPress works. I can't really complain too much about it. Um, it's, yeah, it's a blog engine. It's cool. You know, I tried to lock it down as much as I could and... I've got, I actually, one thing I found the most interesting was how many social, like I've got a lot of social link stuff on there. Um, more than, more than I thought I was going to have. So like obviously I've got my email address on there. I've got Twitter. I've got GitHub. I've got LinkedIn. Um, I've got yeah. Skype. Um, so if people want to reach me on Skype, they can reach me. That's the hand, my handle's right there. I've got, um, I don't know. Have you looked at Desktopper? I have no idea what that even is. <laughs> Desktopper is a couple of guys that I want to say Melbourne, but maybe from Sydney. Um, basically, it's like uh, social wallpaper sharing. <laughs> I have, I have, 
I have a bizarre obsession with wallpapers and probably change them every couple of days or so. I have a script that basically goes into a folder, picks a random wallpaper, puts it on my screen and deletes it and deletes the old one that was there before. So to I make sure that you never get the same one twice or what? Yeah, I just go, oh, well, you know, I just need a new day, you know, something's like, I'll just be like, I just need to change, so I'll change a wallpaper on my main machine or half a dozen other machines. Um, and it makes me feel better. And I'm like, that's cool. Um, and I always know that if I go back to desktop, I can always find more wallpapers, so there's no point mm-hmm. in keeping old ones. So um, my, my wife laughs at the fact that, yeah, she's the designer, but I'm the one that actually changes their, my wallpaper like on a regular basis. That's kind of cute. It's, you know, another very unusual thing, I think, for a yeah, so developer like you do, really. <laughs> yeah, so if you go to desktop, or you, the link's there. You can actually see all the wallpapers that I've got up there and um, you know, that I've either I've either uploaded or um, have just said, you know, I like this wallpaper, so it's like sort of my... Um, curated list of wallpapers I like. Yeah, I'm just looking at it right now. Oh, the tiger is kind of cool. Yeah, there's, I like, there's a bunch of stuff in there that I quite like. Uh, yeah, desktop is pretty good. Okay, interesting. Yeah, never heard of it before. Yeah, uh, Google+. And then I also linked to my SoundCloud account as well, where every so often I find a bunch of music I like on there and I just reshare it. Hmm, okay. GitHub, Twitter. Uh, DJ set. What about Facebook? No, Facebook's personal. Okay. Yeah, Facebook for me is about my friends. It's not. It's not a. It's not a public space. I put Google Plus on there, even though I never use it. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm still not convinced of Google Plus. You know, I'm. I've got yeah. obviously an account with my main Gmail account, and I've a while ago, like probably two years ago, whenever I started to occasionally share a few things. Yeah. It's just like uh, I can't be bothered really. <laughs> And I I agree, you know, Facebook is kind of a more personal thing, which is yeah. not publicly available. Um, my Facebook yeah. profile, I mean, you get my Facebook profile because you can now search for everyone, but my stuff on there is usually just shared with friends. Yeah. Um, and with Google Plus, I just don't know, you know, I'm sharing on Twitter and on Facebook and I just don't want to have a third thing. And the problem with Google Plus I found is they don't have an API, which makes it really annoying to like cross post stuff into. Um, mm. into Google Plus. Like, even if I did something on Twitter and just want to, you know, push it in there, it's just, like, not possible or really a pain to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was using... I got back into Google Plus for a little bit. I was hacking on a project. Actually, I could probably put it in the list. It was um, a project called Palaver. Uh, some kids had set up some stuff. Basically, they'd hooked up Google's voice recognition to um, the Linux system so that you could... You could do voice recognition, send it off, and then it would come back as text, and then it would go and do actions. It was kind of really messy the way they'd done it, and um, but the way they did their interaction with the community was through a Google Plus group. Ah, uh, okay. Um, back when I was I was mucking around with voice control, and yeah, I ended up giving it up. But um, yeah, so I mean that wasn't too bad. And, uh, occasionally I hop on there and have a look. I think I think more than anything, I like all the services around Google Plus. I like Hangouts, I like Chat, I like all that stuff. I don't actually use Google Plus for just about anything else. I don't even I don't even like Hangouts. I think Hangouts are like a broken technology. That's what I personally find. It, you know the, the the plugin you need doesn't work on some machines and it crashes and it's yeah. Ugh, I just loathe it. Really, it's not. Anything I enjoy using. Yeah. Uh, apparently, I'm I'm eligible for a custom URL. I don't want to do that because I never changed my thing. Oh, you're looking at um, Google Plus. <laughs> like, Google Plus now. On? What's going on there? Um, 
So yeah, that's cool. Um, and the nice thing I found also about that, um, and this is a good segue, is uh, doing the WordPress stuff got me hacking into more Vagrant and Ansible things. Where do you host your blog? On, on AWS? AWS, yeah, it's just AWS. It's not a micro instance. I mean, it's not the fastest thing in the world, but it works for, for my level of traffic, which is practically nothing. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, – it's – it's on GitHub, strangely enough. There's, I've got a where are we? Ansible WordPress. It's not terrible. It's not actually no. The installation works pretty well. My backup and restore isn't as good as I'd like it. I think in some cases. Um, but yeah, I basically the way to, I used it to learn Ansible and WordPress was um, using. Uh, so I had a Vagrant setup. So people don't know Vagrant. It's um, it's a way to automate setting up VMs. Uh, and Ansible sort of provisioning and deployment and all that sort of stuff. So um, set up an Ansible script to set up WordPress on the machine, on the Vagrant machine, and then I also wrote some scripts to do backups and restores mm, okay. of installations. Um, and that actually worked pretty well. Um, so I could have, obviously I had my local dev environment sort of using Vagrant, and then I could actually use my Ansible script to, to set up uh, my box in the sky, which worked reasonably well. I think I ended up tweaking it a little bit because I got lazy and tired and I couldn't be bothered anymore. Um, and it was personal, so I could. Um, but that that actually saved me, yeah, a good chunk of time, which was nice and a lot of stuff that I couldn't remember and setting up the right permissions on directories and all the weird custom stuff that you end up doing. So, yeah, it was pretty good. So um, I really like Ansible. I can't remember. Have we talked about Ansible before? Yeah, we have. We have. Okay, good. Um, so, yeah, I was just hacking on that some more and... Um, that worked out pretty well. I've got an interesting question for you about WordPress. Are you, um, you know, outside like VM backups and all that stuff? Do you actually do something particular when it comes to backupping specific parts of your WordPress installation? Like, let's say the database or you know the file system with potential uploads and assets you uploaded into WordPress and stuff like that. Uh, to be honest, my backups will probably be daily backups because of our AWS RDS. And, oh, yeah. and every okay. so often, I will probably just take a snapshot of the machine. Okay. But yeah, because what I'm actually doing with my WordPress setup is I've got two plugins. One is like just a database plugin, which a uh, database backup, which is really simple. Basically, sends you a SQL script via email yeah. or puts it somewhere on on an, another server if you want to. Yeah. And I've got also another thing that's called um, WordPress to Dropbox, which is really cool oh, actually. Yeah. So it automatically hooks into my Dropbox and basically creates a clone of itself in my Dropbox that oh, I can at any time just easily access it and get all the stuff I need or I want. That's fair enough. Actually, I have in my Ansible WordPress, I have backup scripts in there that will take copies of your full upload, um, your basically your entire WordPress. Yeah, the WP yeah. content folder and all that stuff. Yeah, all that stuff and also like do, do MySQL backups and stuff as well. And there's a restore in there as well, I think, that I think kind of works. I had some issues with database permissions, I think, that versus my local versus what I had on AWS that I think I ended up hacking around. But, um, mm, okay. yeah, that worked worked pretty well. But, um, yeah, look, overall, I'm pretty happy with, with WordPress. I think if I was starting from scratch, um, I probably would end up doing like a Squarespace or a Medium or a Ghost or one, any of those hosted services. Mm. Um, Probably just jump on that because it's easy. Um, or if I didn't do that, probably a static, like a static blog generator with like discuss comments and stuff. Uh, okay, yeah. 
probably do that. But yeah, since I've got stuff going back to 2004, I was like, nah, I'll just port it over. Actually, you're, the interesting your, your block was block CFC before, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. It was a custom transfer. Power. Oh really? Yeah, it had like a yeah. custom MVC framework. It had a custom like CI like a dependency injection framework. It was like I wrote it like like back in back with like that that was one of the first transfer projects that ever got written. I probably actually no, it would have been the first transfer project that ever got written. That was the that was the the stumping ground for trying to get that done and a few other things that never got released. Cause, oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you like how easy it was to convert from Block CFC because I I mean my blog went through a few iterations of technologies. I started yeah. with movable type, which was back then Perl based. Yeah. And that was kind of interesting. And then at some point I moved um, stuff over to Block CFC. Uh, it was actually which... really easy. There was. Um... Now you've got to be remembering, but um, the WordPress import takes like a bunch of different stuff. I think I could actually spat it out as an RSS feed that it imported. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so I just wrote a little CFM page that spat out the RSS feed, imported that, um, just made sure that um, all my did some did some hackery in the database to just change some paths to where some images were. Yeah. Um, to a particular directory, and boom, that was it. Yeah, when when I did my easy. migrations, I usually just end up writing a custom script in CFML, like querying stuff, and yep. then putting it into the new database format as I needed it. Oh yeah, yeah. And I then, didn't want to yeah. change the format, but yeah, so the importer took. I think it was RSS, and it was like, yep, no problem, go for it. Okay. Yeah, cool. Um, ah, right, well, we did one of mine. Let's do one of yours. Um, what should I start with? Uh, Raygun IO CFML provider. That's a bit a while ago, but it's kind of like occasionally ongoing. Um, for you remember what Raygun is, right? That, yeah, the um, error, the error, error logging service. Yeah, yeah, I wrote a CFML provider, and that actually is on GitHub for a change. Um, and people use that. That's actually quite quite fine. I mean, I'm I when I built it, I built it pretty much for my own views. So yeah. it's by far not perfect or complete. Well, it, it works. You know, it, do, it locks all the data yeah. you want. But, you know, the code could certainly be improved on. And, you know, other people have obviously other ideas. But someone recently um, basically provided, like, instructions how to use it with Codebox and some other oh, nice. person basically looked into, like, you know, how, if you want to lock stuff or if you want to use it on static HTML pages and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, a few people have picked it up, which is which is quite nice. And, you know, if people See, who use... Put everything who, on GitHub, everything on yeah. GitHub. Yeah. Oh, it will be picked up at some point, sure. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, if, if if it helps anyone using CFML, it doesn't matter if it's Adobe ColdFusion or Rylo or OpenBlueDrang, yep. to actually track the errors better, I'm all for it because, you know, way too few people do that in the first yep. place. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's one thing I was doing. Um, and I've got that on my to-do list to punch in a few more changes because... Um, JD and his team have actually changed a few bits and pieces in the yep. API that I need to catch up with. Um, and another thing I'm, I've been doing is putting together a few Rylo training modules. Oh yeah. So I'll, yeah, I can't really talk too much about that, but there are a few interesting topics and I just need to work out what it's going to happen with while training and, you know, like when and how they're going to be released and used. Um, but yeah, something on that end is happening. Whereas you can obviously argue that it's kind of borderlining to work. But yeah, it is. That's just what it is really. Sweet. <laughs> I think. 
Yeah, and funny enough, um, the other day, I actually had a good look at Learn CF in a week, which I didn't have for quite a while. I don't know if you remember. That was like a... Yeah, I remember it vaguely, but I don't think I've ever looked at it. Yeah, it's like a community project done by a bunch of people from the Adobe called Fusion Cap. Yeah. And it's kind of like a week-long course um, for to you know get into Adobe called Fusion, obviously. And I was actually looking at it because someone I know was going to or was sta- started to go through that and have a mm. you know have a bit of a play with CFML. And I found it actually quite interesting. I think it's actually really well done. But okay. what I found as well is for someone, it's not suited for someone who's a total beginner in development. So the person, uh, yeah. who, the person who did that is, was, is a web person, but coming from a design UX background. Hmm. And so the learn CF in, but they want to sort of learn programming. I mean, they'd... yeah, exactly. And that learn CF in a week is kind of. It, I think it would be really good for people who you know use PHP or use whatever, like mm. Ruby or Python, and if they want to get into CFML, but it's not suited for people who want to learn programming with CFML from scratch. Yeah. So that's actually, I mean, you know, that's an interesting. Interesting gap, I think, and I wonder if any tutorial material for CFML currently is filling that gap. And I would struggle to find anything. I had a quick look at, at Linda. And I had a quick look at um, uh, Plural Site, which both actually have CFML courses. Interesting enough, mm-hmm. um, but you know they're all geared for people like you know new features in Cold Fusion nine or ten or something like that, basically, but not okay. for teaching people to program. Cool. So for cool. all those people learning to learn Cold Fusion. Well, you know, you can certainly argue how many of those <laughs> there are. Let's stop writing this. I really should. <laughs> that, that, is, that, is, that is fair enough, basically. Um, yeah, but, you know, there are people yeah. who want to or who need to learn that, basically, for whatever reason. I mean, there is a market. It's a small one that's, you know, yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. And, and it's Rilo's business, so yeah, no, that makes sense. Oh, actually, on a, on a slight segue from that, um, considering I keep bashing on Confusion these days, um, I, I realized the other day that I've been kicked off feeds.adobe.com. My blog's no longer on there. I didn't even know that existed still. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's still there. It's still running. I don't know. Now, now, admittedly, I don't know whether or not it was because I haven't written anything on my blog since January, um, except for what I just posted recently about, hey, I've got a new blog. Um, but <laughs> or if it's me just picking on CF at the moment, um, but uh, I just found that kind of amusing, if nothing else. Um, let me just have. A, I'm just on the side. Like I said, I have. N- I had no yeah, it's, idea. It's exactly that the same. Still existed. The same. Still looks the same. Where's the list of the blogs? Oh, here we go. Web go to web blogs. There must be – I mean, there are blocks in there that are last updated 2009. Yeah. So, oh, you reckon oh, – oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, there's stuff back in, like, 2011. So, obviously, it wasn't a content issue. There's the Macromedia Developer Relations Podcast. I mean, I don't yeah, even know what yeah. the Developer uh, Relations Podcast was, to be honest. So Lily, Lily I said something. Oh, well. What are you going to do? Um, let me just have a quick look. Block. 
in. Yeah, I didn't see you in there. There's nothing with black in there. Yeah, I've got stuff in there for uh, 2010. <laughs> yeah, my block is clearly not on that yeah. anymore. But you know, it's like fair enough, I think. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm not, uh, yeah, I don't blame him. I just thought it was amusing, if nothing else. It was, lo- it w- when it was on there, it was in a strange category anyway. I think it was always listed under air or something like that, and I uh, yeah. don't know why that was in the first place. I was always on confusion, but yeah, no, that's very funny. So let me talk about Xmonad. Talk about what? Xmonad. Huh? Oh, Xmonad, oh, X- okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll be very curious about what the hell that is. <laughs> oh, you don't, you know, you've never heard of it before? I know that what monads are, basically, but... Okay, I don't so, so yeah, it's got, yeah, don't worry about the monad side of things. Okay, so, um, uh, Xmonad's a tiling window manager, is what it is. Oh, okay. Uh, with... Surprising. <laughs> That's not what you expected at all. So um, it's something, it's something like, um, Tmux, basically. Simple, similar. Similar-ish, similar-ish, um, but for your, your desktop. Okay. Um, so I was getting, I don't know, I felt, I was feeling a bit more frustrated than usual, um, with Ubuntu and Unity and the way it was set up. Um, and I found I was always like <coughs> trying to really configure how Compiz was working. So basically hitting like all these configurations to try and get it just the way I wanted it. And in each release, there was always like some subtle bug where it's like, you know, I wanted to do something that was not normal to what it usually did, and there'd be a bug over here or a bug over there, and, like, while it was supported, it didn't quite work right, and I don't know, it was kind of bugging me, and the dash was bugging me, and it was just irritating me. I, I don't know, so I started, I was, like, I was running around looking for different window managers, so if people don't know Linux very well, um, in, like, unlike Windows or OS X, where it's like, this is how it works... You've got your base system, but then you can have different window managers over the top that completely change the UI, how windows work. You know, if you've ever seen the spinning cube, you get compiers, which is like, which are all 3D stuff. Um, so you can really change your experience quite easily without, without stepping away from, um, the underlying architecture mm-hmm. of the OS, you know, very mm-hmm. CSS on top of HTML sort of thing. Um, so I started looking at tiling window managers, um, I've been hacking, I tried and sort of, I was actually looking at like things like XFCE, so really lightweight window managers, which is the normal traditional sort of stuff. And that was, nah, it was okay, it wasn't anything special. Um, yeah, it didn't, it didn't sort of rock my boat. I was like, I'd done that before, and I, I was like trying to mung it into different ways to try and get certain things to work together, and it wasn't really working. Um, and I started looking at, uh, what was I looking at? I read an article about a tiling window manager whose name I cannot remember. Um, Nope, it's gone. Okay. I think it's a fork of like i3 or something. There's a few of them. And um, there's a guy I know online on, on IRC who's way into Haskell. He's like, go do, go do Xmonad. Go look at Xmonad because Xmonad's all written in Haskell of configurations in Haskell. Uh, and I'm like, but I don't want to write Haskell. He's like, you won't. It's fine. It's fine. He was lying. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the Haskell you have to write is pretty, like, pretty, once you get in the swing of it, it's not like you're writing crazy Haskell or anything. Um but I've come to really, really like it, um, and now it's across all my machines. So it's a tiling window manager, um, but what's nice about it is, well, there's, there's a few things I really like about it. Um, one of which is it comes it comes set with predefined tiling layouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by default, what happens is you have full screen, then when you add a new window to the screen, um, it puts it 
you'll have a split. So you'll have a left, a left main and a right. And then as you add more windows, the, the right ones just add up. So you get like three or four on the right hand side and then one just. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. And you can rotate through different layout options. So you could have top bottom. You can have, there's, there's a whole bunch of them. You can, you can choose from. There's like circles. There's full screen and then it just flicks between all of them. Um, and you can set up in your configuration exactly what tiling window manager, uh, tiling layouts you want, the order they come in, all that sort of stuff. And the other thing that's great about it is you have, well, complete and utter control about all your window layouts. Um, and where am I? So if I look at um, my dot file for it, I can actually sort of talk through some of the interesting things in it. Yeah, while you're looking for that, I just Googled around a little bit, and actually there are people using um, Xmonad on Mac as well. Yeah, I believe so you, you, you can get it to work, I think, in some way at least. Yeah, because so. because macOS essentially has like um or it used to have X11 and now it has X quartz which is kind of like the whole X system yeah. essentially. And the nice thing I liked about Xmonad above a lot of things it has really nice GNOME integration so I pretty much stick with all the services and the the utilities and the GNOME panel that I'm used to when you're running Ubuntu. Mm-hmm. And it also comes with really sensible defaults. So with a really small, like it's a really small configuration file, it's basically like, hey, install the helpers that, you know, hook into GNOME. And that's pretty much it. Um, and you go Ubuntu apt-get install xmonad. It hooks everything up and you're, you're ready to go. Okay. And then you just kind of just expand as you need to. Um, but I've got it set up to do stuff where it's like, um, well, I changed my, my, my activation key. So all the shortcuts I've kind of tweaked. Um, but I've set up how many workspaces I want, how to skip between them. Um, workspaces is basically or essentially like one of one screen layout, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, it's a screen layout. The one thing that that Xmonad does that's um, different to most most sort of screen layouts is if you've got multiple monitors, mm-hmm. you can control them independently. So I might have uh, like workspace one on my left, workspace three on my right. And then I can change work, the right one to workspace four, and the left one will still stay workspace one. Okay. Mm-hmm. You can actually take a little while to get used to. Um, there are controls in there. There are, there are stuff in there so you can actually move things together if you want to. Um, but like I said, you have complete control, so you can do whatever you want. Um, and you, I've hooked into some some cute little graphical stuff to do like sort of dash style or like uh, Quicksilver searcher stuff. Um, but again, I can control that. So I've got one that does does uh, the default one, which is basically let me run any file that I've got, you know, my bin directory. Then I've got one that's um, basically it's a file searcher, and it, that goes off and opens things up. Um, I can make it look how I want, all that sort of thing. Um, but it's also like, okay, so I've got, I can be specific. I can be like, you know what, you know, these particular windows, I want them to float in the middle. But these mm-hmm. particular windows, I want to be part of tiling. So I can really get really specific about it. It's, um, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. It's, it's, it sounds interesting. I think, you know, from what I hear, part of the functionality that it gives you is already in macOS. Like, you know, the different workspaces, for example, they, you know, they are kind of what expose gives you in different, different screen layouts. And there are a few, like, really simple and straightforward tools that seem to do at least a bunch of the stuff you were talking about. Like, if I want to, you know, make sure that on a certain screen layout, certain windows, show up in you know in a certain order and stuff like that you can do some of that stuff just like with the operating system but obviously not to you know not to the level of detail 
that a tool like that would give you specifically, or you know, you probably can't script it that easily as well. Yeah. A lot of it would be configuring it by like positioning stuff and then you know like saving that configuration or something like that. Basically, I've seen that in the past. Yeah. So um. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I used to use like um. There's a there was an app called Quake. Um. Uh, it's basically was like a Quake style terminal drop down thing. So you hit F12 and it was come down. I ended up getting rid of it because in Nextmonad I can have um, apps that essentially float wherever I want them to. So I could just have a terminal that I hit a shortcut key and it shows up and then goes away again. Um, mm, okay. I do that with, and I can do that with anything. Um, and it's really easy to do. It's it's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty nice. Um, if anyone wants to have a look at my Xmonad.hs, um, pretty much all my dot files and all the provisioning I do on my local machines. Blog post for coming. Um, Oh, okay. So you link. just you just post the link in the Google yeah. Doc. Okay. Yep. Um, and it's not like once you wrap your head around it, it's like okay, you just you kind of pick the common patterns and like I I know enough Haskell now to destroy things and that's pretty much about it. Yeah, I've just put another link in there that I just found that is um, a blog post about a project called Slate, which seems to be an Xmonad-like window manager for oh, yeah. macOS. So yeah, if we just put it in the blog post, and maybe if people are interested in you know going down that road, yeah, why not? And it even looks interesting to me, just from looking at it for like a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, I like it. You should, yeah, you should work on Xmonad. It's fun. That's fun. I enjoy it. Okay, interesting. Um, so another thing I was I'm doing currently is um, working on my Philips U-Light system. Did I tell you so, about that? I think you did, but remind me. That's is that one of those ones where you can change. Like yeah. whatever color the light is programmatically or do whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. That's basically it's oh, the the starter kit is like three light bulbs. Yeah. Um and we got actually four. We got like a fourth one because we have four lights in the room where we have it installed currently. Mm. And it is a quite cool concept concept basically. The 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 light bulbs have they they they're basically a little Zigbee. Um receivers pretty much and they hook into a little bridge that you plug into your router and then you can control your light through your wi-fi that's the whole idea and they have like um you know they have android apps or ios apps where you can you know create certain moods if you want to or you can like you could like push a button and it'd be like disco time Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there is there there are actually apps for the iPhone at least that are called like U Party or something like that, where oh, you 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 put your iPhone in a room and it picks up the music over the microphone and then it changes the light according to the music, basically. You know, like yeah. like a strobe or like party lights or whatever, basically. I mean, you can do all sorts of stuff, but you can do simple things like you want to have like a certain light mood for waking up in the morning, you know, like Aww. some sort of an orangey, you know, sunrise Actually, type of that thing. Would be, that would be kind of cool, like as an alarm, you know, the lights just gradually yeah, and on they, in, in, in can, a nice way. That'd be yeah. that'd be cool. I'd like that. That's actually really nice. That'd you can nice you can actually up. do that. You can actually get them to fade in over like you know five minutes or something like that. Yeah. That's totally possible. So the problem that I ran into though is um, if you want to control your lights from the outside, which you can um, through that bridge and through your Wi-Fi router, you. Um, need to hook into a thing that's called the Philips U bridge. So yeah. they have like a web portal where you need to connect your little bridge device in your network to. And then um, that is using U 
UPnP or whatever it's called, that mm-hmm. discovery protocol to basically you know hook up to that bridge outside your network that when you're not at home, you can still switch on the lights if you want to. Or you can, you know, pick up external events like, for example, the weather. And depending on the weather, you're changing uh, you're changing the, the light. You know, if it rains, it's blue. If it's, you know, sunshine, it's orange or red or whatever you want to do, basically. So you can do stuff. You want, you know what, you know what you need to be able to do. You want to be able to hook that up to like Jenkins or Circle CI, basically. Yeah, to a filter. Yeah, Yeah. you could, you could, you could totally do that, basically. But the problem is that Philips external portal is notoriously buggy. Uh And for whatever reason, I didn't manage to connect my light system properly to that portal. The portal basically doesn't pick it up. And I spent like numerous conversations and chats and email exchanges with Philips support people. Mm. And also, you know, basically pretty much like opened up the whole router, you know, in both directions and did port forwarding and all sorts of crazy stuff. And for whatever reason, the, the, the bridge or the, that portal doesn't pick up my bridge. And that's an issue a bunch of people had. Um, yeah. So it's not not only me, but Philips is not really willing or able to do anything about it for whatever reason. So my option at that point was like, well, I could you know activate the Consumer Guarantees Act, which is like a you know buyer's protection thing here in New Zealand, mm. um, and return them and fight through that, or I could just try to come up with a, an alternative solution. And what I then found out is that. Um, the Raspberry Pi is used by a lot of people to do stuff like that. So I thought, no, I wanted to get a Raspberry Pi anyway. So let's look into that. So I bought a Raspberry Pi, plugged it into my network, and I'm currently using it only for being a print server, which is quite nice because... Okay, interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like I've got... Well, we've got an old, well, not an old, but we've got a USB printer here, right? But we've got multiple computers and, like, phones and tablets and all that stuff. Oh, okay, so you plug into the USB printer. So I plugged the USB printer into the Raspberry Pi, installed CUPS on it, and set it up as a print server. And the nice thing is, the way how CUPS works is that even, you know, within, like, Apple land, which we have here kind of, kind of, you know, like, that printer is now being picked up as an AirPrint device for iPhones or iPads in the Wi-Fi. So that's actually quite nice. So that's what I'm using it for right now. But I've started to um, look into the, the Philips UAPI to actually build my own light control system. Um, and that's not that hard at the end of the day. I managed to get it to authorize, you know, an application against my own light setup. Yep. I just need to, you know, continue implementing it, essentially. And I'm, I'm kind of torn at the moment if I should. I started doing that with Python um, because it's reasonably nice and lightweight. And Python, due, due to that reason, works really well on the Raspberry Pi, which is, to be fair, not the mm. most powerful device in the world, really. Um, so I might continue going down that road. Um, the other thing I was thinking of, but I'm not quite convinced yet if I want to do that, is yeah. just throw a tiny instance of Rylo on the Raspberry Pi, which you can do, because the, the, the Pi I've got is a 512 um, Mac version. Mm. So it has, it would have enough, you know, main memory to do that. Um, 
but I think ro- Python is the nicer alternative because yeah. it's in general sucking up less resources on yeah. your Raspberry Pi than Rhino yeah, is. You can you can write a you can run a little Python web server on there for a, a lot less of the resources. Oh yeah, I mean you just do like Python minus M, you know, like simple HTTP server and the port, and then you're off and off, and, off you go. go. Yeah, I mean that's easy enough to do really. Um, yeah, that's my current thinking basically. But what I essentially want to do with that is have some instance on the Raspberry Pi that controls my lights. Yep. And then I can obviously use it within the network and then, you know, do some magic port forwarding through my router yep. to that port. And that's not that, hard. Yeah. Exactly. That I basically can then access it from the outside through a VPN or through a normal port forwarding or something like that and can pretty much do the same things that the uh, Philips U portal should allow me to do, but which it doesn't. <laughs> Yep, 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 yep. Way more fun this way, anyway. They're they're trying to enhance the experience. Yeah, ex- yeah. It is actually quite fun to play with that. It creates a bit of an emotional pressure from my wife, on the other hand, because I'm getting that constant like, when is it finished? Did you do something yeah. on it? When can we use the lights? You know, when is when's it going? <laughs> when is it going? It's like, uh, yeah, you know, if I don't do any payable work, then I might do something on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to have it's good to have fun side projects. Yeah, no, and it's it's interesting, you know. I mean, the whole Raspberry Pi is interesting from my point of view. I know a bunch of people have one and you know just have it sitting at home and do nothing with it, you know, sitting yep. at their desk. And it's actually a shame because I'm, you know, just hooking it up to your router and you know jumping on it and discovering the Raspberry Pi operating system, which is basically Linux with. Yep. A very light wide window manager on top of it. Oh, it's okay. quite interesting. Yeah, it's actually didn't, really. I actually it, didn't even realize it had a window manager in it. Yeah, it has actually. Um, uh, I, I can put a few links into into the into the blog post if people are interested. Okay. Um, it's it's a really really nice system. So I installed VNC on it, and basically I just jump on it with VNC and, I, and it has a nice UI even. You know, even okay. though I could just use it on the command line as well, obviously. Use it SSH in and just do whatever you need to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I've always thought about getting an RSVP, but I have no idea what I'd do with it. So, don't I? Well, you could... Uh, I've got another thing, actually, that is going to happen soon because what... I'm, you know, due to my other hobby of flying, I'm kind of interested in weather, right? I, or I got yep. interested in weather. And what... I found a while ago, I don't know, probably two months ago or something, was uh, that some school kids in the UK built a little hardware kit that is a weather station for the Raspberry Pi. Oh, that's cool. So it's like a little shield that you can plug on your Pi, and it has like various, you know, yeah, various various sensors, basically. And there is is even one you can get that measures the radioactivity, which I find really cool. But (laughs) I'm not quite sure if we need that in New Zealand or in Australia, but that's a different, you know, thing. Um, So that was in August or some at some point. And um, so I saw that, talked to Diane about it and to to Ross um, and was really excited about the whole thing and then Mm. realized that it was a Kickstarter and it was like nearly finished. I thought, ah, oh, yeah. do I do I do that like now or I want to think about it? Blah blah blah. So yeah. what I didn't know is Diana basically organized it and bought it. Um, oh nice! 
in you know behind my back and I got it as a birthday present. So that is due to arrive at some point very soon and that will be another thing I'm going to hook into into the Raspberry Pi or maybe into a second one even because my current one is in a quite um tight fitting case. Yeah. And I think with putting the the weather station shield on it that could be a bit tricky to you know fit it into no that way. case. Yeah. yeah, so I might just get another a second one. If you, if you have to. If, I mean if you have to. Yeah, it's like you know not expensive anyway. It's like yeah. it's a good thing, you know, for like the for the small model you pay like 30 35 dollars. It's like, yeah, why wouldn't I get just a second one, you know? That sounds like fun. Yeah, I would love to have a hardware hacking project, but I haven't got there yet. Yeah, it's not really hardware hacking, you know, like using you the car as such. You, have, you have hardware. That hardware, there's lights. Yeah, yeah, it is to a certain extent. But it's not hardware hacking to like, you know, the level of building cool shit with Arduino and, you know, doing that stuff. However, the the weather station is actually going to be a kit. So I, you know, I got a soldering iron with it. For my oh, birthday. Nice. <laughs> so I have to put it together. It doesn't come pre-assembled. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll let everyone know that goes. <laughs> I think I got a, I've got a soldering iron, I think, for when I installed my own stereo in my car. I think that was it. Like, that's the extent I've ever... Which oh. is not that hard, strangely enough. I, I'm not even sure if you still need to do that now. Isn't it nowadays just plug and play? You get, like... I have no idea. ...the car and some other thing in your radio, and you just plug it together, and that's it nowadays? Basically, I think, if I remember correctly, I had... I mean, we were talking... I probably did this in, like, 2000. So we are talking 10 years ago. <laughs> but I think, um, yeah, I had to buy the adapter for my car. There's a certain adapter that plugs in, and then I had to solder the wires from the unit into those, like match the colors up, just solder them up, tape them up, and then once I plugged it in, it just worked. Okay. That was pretty much it. That was, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't anything more than that. Yeah, yeah I did soldering. Cool. <laughs> so that was fun. All right, cool. All right, so probably the only other one I've got left over, which I could probably talk about for a while, um, was uh, I've, I really wanted to do some closure. I was like, I really, like, I just... I really liked it, but I wanted to actually build something because mm-hmm. I to really learn something. So I was getting I was getting really frustrated with um, we use Skype all the time at work, which works, but I can't stand it. Uh, and we've been looking at for ages. We've been looking at um, moving to something like HipChat or or Campfire or half a dozen other things that are mm-hmm. out. But with all us developers on Linux, none of them have voice support. They either say mm, they use okay. RTC and they lie, um, or they use the subcomponent of it and the video chat does nothing to do with it. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not supported or whatever. So I was like, all right, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to build the best, you know, chat, online video chat. <laughs> it's going to be ever. awesome. Ever. And it's going to be open source and it's going to be great. And I haven't gotten very far in it at all. Uh, <laughs> but I was like, I'm going to write it in Clojure and... Um, I had all these grand plans. I was like, okay, I'm going to write enclosure because I want to write enclosure. Cool, cool. I've, you know, I've never done that before. That'll be great. Um, for the JavaScript side, well, I might as well do closure script because I'm writing everything in closure. So, you know, that makes sense. Yep. So I can do it all together and I can learn at the same time. I've never done that before. That's fine. Um, 
I want search, and I was like, okay, I want search to be like a first-class citizen in this thing. I really want it to be like it's really important that you should be able to like search for anything. So I'm like, okay, um, like search in the chat, essentially. Yeah, so like okay. chat logs, or you know, you want to be able to bookmark chat logs, or like be able to search for people or whatever. Like search should be really important because it's all text and it's heaps of communication. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay. Um, first, I was like, maybe I'll use like just MongoDB because it's got some text search stuff in it. I was like, mm, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I've done stuff in Solar. Maybe I'll use that. And then I started reading about Elasticsearch, which is another Lucene-based search index. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's actually really freaking cool. So I was like, all right, so let's do Elasticsearch. Haven't done that before. <laughs> so I'll do that as well. And we're sort of tying it all together. And then the AngularJS for the front end, which I've done some of, which is great, but I've never done it with ClojureScript, so that's fun. Um, and I think pretty much so far I've got a user that goes into Elasticsearch and comes back out, and I've just started on doing the ClojureScript integration with AngularJS. Um, but it's coming together. Like I've got, you know, it's Bootstrap it three, but I so, that's so not very far at all. But let, let me interrupt you. Like, I mean, you've built all that nice infrastructure for search and you know all that those things. That's fine. But what's the actual component for the you know video chat and WebRTC uh, okay, and all so, those yeah, things? Yeah. So I wanted. The, I actually did a whole bunch of research into WebRTC, and that's really interesting as well. Um, which, uh, yeah, something else. Never done that before either. I, I thought I'd, I'd do it all at once. Um, I did some little concepts <laughs> for WebRTC, which is not too bad, and bought some books. Some of the books are pretty because nah, um, it's moving all over the place. So I haven't even um, – I wrote a very small proof-of-concept chat client um, enclosure using HTTP kit and WebSockets, um, which okay. was pretty easy to do. That was actually pretty easy to do. That wasn't, that wasn't too bad. Um, actually, I didn't put that on GitHub. I, I, that was very naughty of me. Um, and I did some really simple proof of concept with RTC, just bring out videos and stuff. Um, didn't go too far into it. Um, so that's that's how the video chat's going to be. That's going to be WebRTC. Um, and I'll pretty much start with just Chrome support because that's just the easiest. Um, but I'm still, like, way far away from there. So at the moment, once I've got... Um, I've pretty much got AngularJS, like the basics of AngularJS working. I'm using a great library um, called Pernum in ClojureScript, um, okay. written by Zach. I've forgotten his last name. I should look it up, actually. Um, so I should put a link in here. Um, he's Melbourne-based, actually, which is awesome. And um, it's a really, really nice well, – not only is it a really nice JavaScript interop with ClojureScript, mm-hmm. um, it allows you to do basically – you know, most of your, your standard um, closure type things on native Java arrays, native Java like objects. Um, it's it's just a really nice layer, but he has a whole bunch of stuff specifically for integrating with AngularJS. Okay. It's away with a lot of the boilerplate and stuff like that, um, and also and and also great stuff for integrating with AngularJS testing. Um, oh, all right. With, like Node.js Karma. Um, and it, he's got a whole workflow. It's beautiful. And he's got great documentation, too. It's actually really impressive. Um, no, he's, it's very freaking cool, and I really like it. Um, so, yeah, I've got that going on. And, um, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's coming together. Um, but, yeah, like I said, I mean, I've got, I've got that. So the next step is actually doing doing the whole Karma integration thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, getting that going, and that's that's sort of so I can actually test my AngularJS controllers, and um, yeah, bring it all together. 
but it's fun. Interesting. Did you did you see that Angular JS 1.2 was released just today or yesterday or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I upgraded it like yesterday or two days ago or something on this project. Okay. Um, yeah, I think there was was it released or was it another another milestone build? No, I think it was the release because the I think the last one was like a release candidate two or three or something. I think it was the re- the final release of 1.2. Uh, but you know, I don't don't nail me on that, but I'm pretty sure it was. I will. Right, if I go download and I go stable, 1.20. There you go. Unstable, and then they're same. And there you go. If you go to the website and you actually click, uh, there's no unstable version for download. There you go. Mm, cool. So yeah, that's that's actually been. Uh, yeah, Angular Angular JS is actually interesting. I saw um, a tweet from Ted Patrick. Um, I think this morning or yesterday, I can't remember, but really uh, recently. Um, and he said pretty much like, you know, the the combination of um, Easel JS, or Easel JS, and as a library to interact with your canvas, plus TypeScript is basically the the new Flash. And um, the combination of TypeScript, Easel JS, and Angular. Is the the new Flex, which you know it's actually quite. That's interesting because I believe the new version of uh, Angular has animation support. Yeah, I saw that in their I've blog not looked post at it at all. about the one two release. Yeah. But I think well, let me. Just, I have just have that open here. Hang on a sec. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it says animations and transitions. Mm. So that might be you know like depending on what it is. I mean, transitions is a different. Thing anyway, testing animations. What has changed? They're not part of the core anymore. Ng animate. Yeah, I think. I mean, Easel JS is at the end of the day a drawing library to draw on the canvas. Uh, that is different from that's different like from what Angular JS. Yeah, stuff. that would be more like yeah. you know page transitions or you know moving mm-hmm. certain UI components around or stuff like that, basically. Mm-hmm. I've got a, a really nice book I picked up. Uh, now I'm going to have to look up the name on Angular that I really like. Uh, let me log into my cloud reader. And I found it because, uh, admittedly, the Angular documentation is lacking in some places. Um, I don't quite like books. Um, ah, what was that website? There's actually a really great website for learning Angular, and I can't remember it. I can't remember it at all. I'm no yeah. use, buddy. Have a have a look at it and put it in the put it in the dock and then. I right, put it in the dock, but um, the book is mastering web application development with Angular JS, and it's okay. really nice. Is it like a recent um, release or is it? Yeah, a... it came out. Um, it's packed, which is not the best people in the world, from what I understand. But um, when did it get released? Uh, August this year. Okay, so it must be quite well. Yeah. Recent recent term. See, the problem with books is nowadays they get outdated and useless so often you really you really have to look extremely closely at any book, how much yes. fundamental knowledge it provides versus, you know, like version-specific knowledge. And it's actually quite funny when just looking back at Flex, you know, Flex went through a whole bunch of iterations, obviously, over its life. Mm. Where, you know, Flex 1 was server-based, Flex 2 was the free SDK, but 
you know, not open source, and then it became open source uh, under Adobe, and now it's like Apache, right, with like version four or yeah. something. And I, you know, back then when I was doing Flex, I went through a whole bunch of books for pretty much every release, like you know, a book for Flex three, and then yep. a whole bunch of bunch of fundamental changes for Flex four and stuff like that. But there was one book um, that was written for Flex one point zero. Oh wow. Um, by two guys who were like among the first people doing Flex back then. Hmm. And I still have that book because even though it deals with Flex in that version one, it has so much useful architecture information that I just can't throw it away. And I don't want to throw it away because it's still, even for doing, you know, single screen JavaScript applications, Mm. It's still useful to look at that and get some ideas, you know, okay. how would you structure certain things and solve certain problems. And that's a very unusual thing I find nowadays, you know, because most books are just written like, oh, you know, here's how you do this and that in this version. And here's another 200 pages API documentation that you could also get online, but we needed to make the book thicker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, that's actually very interesting. I, I have to be honest, I mean, now I've got my Kindle and, like, I can read books, especially through Amazon, directly through a browser and stuff. Like, I'm, I'm much more disposable about it. Be like, oh, I'm learning something, let's go find some books. Mm-hmm. You know, and I pay 20, 30 bucks for a book, and I like learning that way, so it works really well for me, and I can take it wherever I go. Um, but I'm totally disposable about it. Like, once I'm done, like, you know, I might come back to it, I might not, whatever. As far as I'm concerned, you know, it doesn't sit on my shelf, so I don't really need to care. Yeah, and I find yeah. that interesting that my mindset has changed about books that much because of because of, I can get it all digitally now. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I can actually. Do you remember going to the bookstore and being like, "Oh, I need a book on on you know writing whatever." And so you'd go to the bookstore and you'd go look for a book. Yeah, <laughs> I, the, it's like an investment. You know, you just put your time into it. Now I'm like, oh, I'm on Amazon. I'm doing stuff with Angular. Oh, that looks all right. Yeah, one click. Thanks. Good. Oh yeah, maybe I'll get that one too. One click. Good. I'm done. All right, sweet. What have I got? Oh, it's on my Kindle already. Yes, yeah, sweet. <laughs> like, it's it's lovely, but it, yeah, it becomes so much more disposable. It is very interesting because I still like the concept of bookshops. You know, bookshops. Really? I had nothing. Yeah, about that. I last night I worked at a bookshop. Pro- Provide like, or at least certain bookshops. I mean, you know, don't don't think of Borders or Whitcalls or something like yeah. that. That's just like crap chain bookshop without any soul. But you know, going to a nice, what is it called, like artisan bookshop or independent bookshop, that mm. can be a really nice experience, right? But obviously, I wouldn't go there necessarily to buy a novel or to buy an IT book. You just go there to yeah. browse and maybe buy a gift for someone or like a really cool book on, I don't know, whatever, architecture. So oh, yeah, yeah. Or, or go there and just like take photos of the books you like so that you can buy them later online. Uh, yeah, for which some books. bad, but <laughs> I've been known to do that on more than one occasion. <laughs> But, you know, like for, for some books, like for example, novels, right? I don't buy novels as paper books anymore. And that's no, where, where I've become yeah. extremely dis- disposable. And I mean, that's always what I tell people, you know, if you, all, if you once had to ship all your books and we're talking about like whatever, 30 moving boxes around half the world, you will see why having paper books as for novels is not necessarily a good thing, really. It's awful. It's awful. I mean, as a traveler, like I, I, when I'm reading, which I am right now actually a lot, I can, I tear through books. Like I can go through an 800 page book in like two, three days. Like it's ridiculous. So if I'm traveling, I used to carry like three 800 page books with me 
Because yeah. if I was gone for a week, like there was no way I wasn't getting through with it. And they'd be in my they'd be in my carry on too. Like because if I'm on a plane, um, or the worst, I can remember doing this all the time. Whenever I was about to get on a plane, I'd have like a hundred pages left in one book, mm-hmm. and it's a big book. And I'm like, well, I have to finish it, so I have to take that with me. <laughs> yep. And then yeah, I have no. two other books to to come with me as well. And lugging all these huge books, I'm like, oh, I love my Kindle so much these days. <laughs> now I'm just now we just sound old. You realize that? Really? Do we? Uh, I think so. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I well, I mean, I, you know, yeah, like in, if, in a few in a few years, people yeah. will actually say, like, what do you mean, paper books? Yeah, yeah. And there there yeah. were phones before the iPhone and Android, really? Yeah, really. <laughs> there was a great article I read ages ago about this guy who gave his like thirteen year old kid a Walkman. <laughs> He's like, this is how you listen to this is how you listen to music for this week. Here's a Walkman and here's a bunch of tapes. And for them, it's like, wait, wait, I can't shuffle. I have to like, <laughs> just listen to it in order. And then if I want to listen, like, I have to, like, fast forward. Or, like, what the hell? Seriously? <laughs> like, uh, it's interesting. Carrying around 30 tapes, you know, like, just nuts stuff like that. In a little suitcase? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a Disman for years, and I had, like, yeah, a too. packet with CDs in it that I used to carry around so I could. And, and a huge packet full of, like, batteries. Because those things just flew through a discman. See, I had a discman, but that was in my first car. Oh yeah. So basically, I had my first car, and I had a discman, which was kind of a special one to, you know, to be more bump resistant or whatever that the disc. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. All the time, and I had it strapped with Velcro straps to, you know, some part of the console in my car, and yeah. then like, you know, twenty CDs or thirty CDs in the car. And back then, you know, I was like really progressive it was like awesome oh my god kai has got a you know a cd player in his car now it's like yeah okay <laughs> you know what you know what i remember when mp3s first came out it was before i even had yeah it was before it would have been before i had a cd player in the car or even a cd burner and so what i used to do was actually run run an audio cable down to a cassette tape player and so i could play my mp3s in the car i would record them onto a cassette sweet and take that cassette and put it in my car yeah, interesting concept. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, totally. I I totally agree. My first MP3 player, actually, and we're totally going off topic here. My first MP3 player had a compact flash memory card in there. So oh, it nice. was basically an MP3 player that actually came with no way of storing stuff. It was an empty shell with yeah. two or three buttons and a headphone plug. And then you had to actually, you know, take a compact flash card, get that separately, put music on it, and then Sh- yep. Push that cart into your player, and then you could listen to it. You know, I don't know, but about twenty I've songs. Got, I've still got my original iPod. It's got sixty gigabytes of stuff on it. Yeah, we've got an, a really old iPod here as well, somewhere. It's not uh, not my original one, but it's somewhere in in this house. <laughs> I think it's actually music on there that I don't have anywhere else too. Ah, okay, interesting. At some point, I might have to pull it off. We'll see. But, um... Yeah, how did we get there? Ah, uh, books. Kindles. Okay, so just – I mean we're talking for quite a while already. Just one thing yeah. quickly uh, be, that I want to mention before we um, finish. That's a project I found yesterday actually. It's called KiwiJS. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll put the link into um, 
into the blog post. But it's really interesting. It's kvjs.org. Mm. And when I told Mark about that, when I told you about that earlier, you were already starting to make fun, fun about it, obviously. But it's a really it's nice... It's, it's basically a library that puts A on the end of every sentence you make. Yep. Or bro. <laughs> or bro. Oh, nice. <laughs> so what it really is instead, it's a um, JavaScript game development library. Mm, nice. And it's done by um, some guys who run a website or project called Gamefruit, and yep. that is a flash-based gaming SDK. So you can log on to that, that site, and they give you pretty much a game construction kit in the browser where you can you know, upload your own bitmaps and tiles and whatever, and it allows you to build 2D jump-and-run games. Or That's jump, big. jump and run yeah. and shoot games. And then you can, yeah. you can share the games with other people and play them in the browser. So that's quite cool. So, um, you know, for obvious reasons with, you know, Flash having the issues that it has nowadays on mobile for, in particular, they actually started looking into a JavaScript solution and they came up with KiwiJS, which is actually on GitHub and you can, you know, grab it and contribute to it. And it allows you to build 2D platform jump, run, and shoot games in JavaScript, and it looks really cool. So I just got it yesterday, so I don't really know much about it, but they have a few tutorials on there, and like, you know, the API looks to be quite nicely documented for what it is. It's version 0.5 right now. Um, so that's something I want to have a bit of a closer look, because that particularly that 2D jump and run game thing, that is kind of appealing, because you can, you know, create like really nice Mario type games in that yeah. model and I'm you know I probably like those those type of games more than um things like 3D shooters to be honest for all the stuff that people play nowadays you should totally play Rogue Legacy but we've talked about that before yeah we did yeah um actually just to just to expand on that if you're interested in the game stuff um there was a presentation at Strange Loop which I actually didn't manage to attend unfortunately I had a good chat with the author um that is put in the show notes. Uh, Functional reactive programming with Elm, um, which is really, really interesting stuff. Um, he he, and a great presentation actually. He uh, he demonstrates it by building uh, a Mario type little game. Okay. And, and showing the physics and stuff, and he puts it all together in a functionally reactive way uh, using the Elm language. It's by Evan. I can't pronounce his last name. Shiplicky. Uh, He's the he's the author of Elm, the Elm language, um, and it's basically a layer on top of JavaScript and HTML and stuff. Um, it's pretty slick what he's able to build, and so if you're into that sort of stuff, you should check that out. That's actually really interesting. It was a good talk at Strange Loop. Mm, okay. Um, but many of the probably very similar concepts. Uh, okay. Cool. What else do we have? Oh, one thing I want to mention actually. Um, yeah. The uh, yeah the CF objective call for speakers for next year's CF objective is finished, but you can still vote for topics. So I just thought I'd put it out there, you know, for people who are doing CFML and who potentially might attend CF objective. Um, there is you're going, a, aren't you? Yeah, I plan to go um, because I was this year and it was actually really good. So I've put a few topic proposals in there mm-hmm. and. I've got that loose plan currently of going to CF Objective, then from there going to Europe, um, hang out with my family and friends for a bit, visit K in Berlin, nice. and then potentially go to Scotch on the Rocks 
and <laughs> then come on the way back, come back home via Asia and meet Diana somewhere in Asia for a holiday. That's my loose strategy and Your plan for that. Uh, nice. Not that I have any plans or any flights yep. booked or something like that. So that's kind of what I'm trying to put together. Um, well, I'll see if it, if it pans out you know, or not. We'll yeah, I think see how that works. If, uh, I want to go to RubyConf AU, um, which I actually put in a couple of speaking presentation things for, and I'm sitting here nervously waiting to hear if um, I get accepted. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I put, in a, I put in a presentation for graph databases, um, so stuff around uh, uh, architecture, around game programming, and stuff on Vertex, which we've talked about before as well. So... Hopefully they pick me, pick me, pick me, like me, like me. Um, though, you know, I'm kind of nerve-wracking. It's like the first time I've actually put in a submission to a conference where I don't know the people running it <laughs> mm, okay. for, 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 for years. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, good, well, good, but, you know, good humbling experience. Clearly, you need to start somewhere, obviously, yeah, right? Uh, totally. and, I mean, yeah. You know, when you did your first conference proposal for a CFML conference, probably you didn't know that many people either back then. No. Well, I actually... I like I I for CF objective. The reason I ended up at CF objective that year was because I was chatting with Jared on Instant Messenger. Ah, okay. So yeah, so I've, I've been I knew a lot of people mainly because of IRC really. Um, I knew I knew a lot of people that way. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's good. I mean, I went to RubyConf for you last year. It was a great conference. Um, so I'm looking forward to it again this year. Um, and yeah, I'll be at Strangely again next year. There's no question, unless you know something blows up or whatnot. Alright. Sweet. So I'll put the link to that voting board in the blog post. It's, I think it closes on Monday or Tuesday or something. It's not open too much longer, but you know, if anyone is interested, they can actually grab it and, you know, leave their opinion on there. Cool. Cool. Alright. Well, um, as per usual, if people want to reach you, Kai, where can they reach you at? Um, Twitter, Agent K, or blogandblack.de, or ventigo-creative.co.nz. That's the easiest. Um, probably the, now I've got this fancy new website. If people want to reach me, go to compoundtheory.com, and there's links to everything. Oh, my God. Even to Desktopper. <laughs> even to Desktopper, which apparently no one else knows about. Now, if you want to listen to lots and lots of mashups and electronic music you can listen to my soundcloud as well so but uh yeah or if you want the shortcut twitter neurotic you can reach me there too and uh please come talk to me and put comments on, my, on our on our podcast and do all that sort of good stuff cool that's good it was a pleasure talking to you mr mandel um we should do that more often we should <laughs> <laughs> okay well thank you very much for talking to me as well cool you're welcome all right. and bye bye everyone